0: From Alaska Teen Media Institute, this is Podcast in Place, a series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm at me producer Tyler Felsen, recording this on a Sure VP88 while isolating at my apartment because I just tested positive for COVID. But so far, my symptoms have been fine, and I think I'll get through it okay. Rapali Lemay is an associate scientist in the Departments of International Health, Epidemiology, and Health Behavior in Society at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She primarily studies vaccine behaviors and has been researching vaccine hesitancy for over eight years. So she's had her work cut out for her in the last couple of years. Atme producer Zinn Rogers spoke with LeMay about her research, including how to have conversations with those who may be hesitant about vaccines, how the public's response to COVID compares to past public health crises, and initiatives to combat misinformation around infectious diseases. They spoke on January 31st, 2022.
1: What initially sparked your interest in vaccine hesitancy in particular?
2: Um, so, eight years ago, um, a little over eight years ago, I actually had my first child. And one of the things that was so interesting was speaking with other parents and understanding that people were having concerns about vaccines. And from a more, I think, personal point of view, I also had been traveling quite a bit until then, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa, as I focused on HIV AIDS behaviors. And so I started to think about what was the type of work that I could really use my expertise here domestically. And so that's what really got me interested in vaccine behaviors, because I realized that parents have questions and there needs to be, I think, better communication and better relationships between providers and parents to help reduce that concerns or those hesitancies that people have.
1: Yeah, and since you've been studying uh, this for so long now, vaccine hesitancy in particular, um, the COVID vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing, there was obviously, your research predated that. So is there a way that people are reacting to these vaccines rather than previous ones?
2: Prior to COVID, there were essentially four key concerns that individuals had that really drove vaccine hesitancy. The first had to do with vaccine ingredients. The second had to do with vaccine schedule, i.e. the amount of shots a child would have to get for a particular series. The third had to do with risk perception. Uh, Parents did not feel as though their child was susceptible to the disease the vaccine prevents, or they did not think that it was severe enough for them to warrant an action, i.e. getting a vaccine. And the fourth main concern was really focused on this misperception related to vaccines and severe adverse events such as autism, even though that has been soundly refuted over and over again. Since then, we've seen some new reasons why there is hesitancy, particularly in the context of the COVID vaccine. So for example, we know that there are high levels of distrust in the government. That has led to concerns with regards to the vaccine development Process related to COVID vaccines, there's also a huge amount of misinformation that has really increased over the course of the pandemic, which has also led individuals to have, I think, additional concerns related to vaccines. And there's also just general issues of confidence related to this vaccine. And that has to do not only with the specific vaccines that we're talking about, but just with the overall COVID-19 rollout that's been happening um, here in the U.S., but also at the global level.
1: And then so before these COVID vaccines became available to the public, were you anticipating the amount of vaccine hesitancy, misinformation and pushback that we're currently seeing?
2: It's a great question. Anytime we we develop a new vaccine product and we bring it to the market, there's always some hesitancy because essentially we have individuals that will say, I would like to wait and see. I'd like some of my friends to get it. I'd like to see how other parents that decide to get it for their children, how their children respond. And so I think we anticipated that there was going to be vaccine hesitancy. I think it was exacerbated simply because of the extreme polarization that we have currently in our country.
1: And then do you do any outreach to connect with those people who are hesitant about the COVID vaccine?
2: I have spoken to, I don't know, somewhere between 2,000 to 3,000 people that are vaccine hesitant during this the course of this pandemic we have done a number of different types of community halls and Q&As where people will come and ask their questions i've worked closely with churches and other community leaders here in baltimore but also just generally across the united states and so i've served as sort of a vaccine resource person across a number of different types of contexts and settings
1: so When engaging with someone who might be vaccine hesitant, how do we have a conversation about vaccines in a thoughtful and meaningful way?
2: So I think the biggest thing to think about is that you have to approach this conversation through empathy. This is a very political, divisive topic. And so when you're speaking to someone, I think the biggest issue as to why people have concerns about the vaccine is because No one has actually discussed with them and listened to them with regards to their concern. So the first thing we try to stress is focusing on empathy and not being dismissive of these concerns. So that's number one. The second issue that we try to focus on is really try to use specific communication techniques that are more empathetic, that are shared decision making, and that allow individuals to be able to express any doubts or concerns that they may have. So we use something called presumptive communication, for example motivational interviewing, as well as tailored messaging. And these three techniques can really help individuals have these conversations. And so that it it will hopefully be less divisive and will be more, I think, conversational and more coming to a shared decision-making type of a process. I think the third thing is to make sure that when there is misinformation is to helping individuals discern what might be good evidence-based information and what might not be based in evidence. One key thing that we have learned during this pandemic is that a number of individuals that have decided not to get the vaccine have done it based on misinformation. And so this is a really a critical part when we're having conversations with people is how do we help them discern what is misinformation and what is true information. And I think the fourth thing is really making sure that these conversations are based in this idea that we are all working towards the same goal, that we are looking to protect our communities and our families, and we're coming to a decision that's really based on evidence.
1: And so if their opinions are rooted in misinformation, like you said in question three, how do you navigate that?
2: Yeah, I think the biggest thing that we have learned is that it's important not to say, well, you're wrong, right? I think it's important to say instead is restructure that conversation slightly and say something along the lines of, we know there's a lot of information out there. It's really hard to determine what is true and what is not true. Let me tell you what I know that is based in evidence-based information. I think that's the first step. The second step we've learned is really trying to point people to evidence-based information. So people might say, oh, well, I'm looking at this website. And a better way, I think, to respond to that is you can say, while that website may contain information related to vaccines, I want to point you to several other alternative websites that are based in evidence. And so it's just another way to essentially approach that conversation. I think the third thing to remember is to not ever ridicule someone for believing misinformation is true. Again, there's a number of individuals I think that are susceptible to misinformation, but the key thing with regards to having this conversation is to to, again, to be empathetic and to not necessarily ridicule or dismiss this type of information that they're getting from this non-evidence-based source.
1: And then, what kind of research have you done? Obviously, you have a lot of ways to navigate around this. What kind of research have you done in particular to come, up, come upon those ways? <sighs>
2: We have probably done, I don't know, so many studies at this point that have really looked at how do we structure interpersonal conversations. And that's typically a conversation, for example, between a provider and a client. We have looked at ways in which we can have conversations peer to peer. So, again, just friends talking to one another. We have also measured and looked at how can the media just generally talk about these different kinds of conversations and the types of appeals, i.e. what they should focus on, what those messages and what sort of message elements those messages should have to persuade people. So we've done quite a bit actually in this space.
1: And then have you done any work in talking to youth who might be hesitant about the vaccine?
2: Yes, and we're actually starting a new initiative to talk to those under the age of 18. One of the things particularly related to COVID-19 vaccines is that this population, the ages between 12 um, and 18, actually have very low coverage rates related to COVID-19 vaccines. We know that's important for us to continue to engage with this conversation. And so we're currently working on an initiative that will focus on how adolescents can speak to other adolescents, again, to really focus on evidence-based information related to the vaccine.
1: And so you've talked about a lot of people and the outreach that you're doing to get them to have more knowledge around vaccines. Do you ever worry that the people who need this information the most might be the last ones to seek it out?
2: It's a really great question, and I think you're exactly right. I think that people that we do engage with are people that do want to engage on this topic. We know that there's a proportion of the population that is probably thinking the reasons why they don't want to get a vaccine are based in misinformation, but also don't want to have a conversation about it. And that's a real challenge. We're continuing to see that proportion of the population grow. And the key here is, can we think of some innovative and different approaches to try to reach out to those specific segments of the population um, so that we can continue to engage in conversation with them?
1: And what is the best channel to getting that reliable information to them?
2: I think the biggest thing that we have learned is that it's important to tailor the information. So for example, when we were trying to work with individuals that were older, social media is not the way to go and actually telephone conversations or even printed material was the way to go. When we're working with younger individuals, we do know that some individuals really like these very short snippets of information, like a TikTok, for example, or something on Instagram. And so I think the key here is that there's not one specific platform that an individual should use. The key here is to tailor the platform to what individuals in that segment really like to go to for information, whether that's social media whether that's peer-to-peer, whether that's using a doctor to deliver that information or a faith-based leader.
1: Very cool. Very cool. And so you've done work in a lot of countries. So how, how does your research change? And in the current day, how has COVID he- vaccine hesitancy changed depending on the country that you are working in?
2: So we have done quite a bit of work with regards to vaccine acceptance, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa, as well as Asia. As you can imagine, hesitancy is is different by context. However, the one thing I think that comes out that is true across all contexts is that if individuals do not trust their government, that then leads to them not trusting their, their healthcare system. And that really does impact vaccine coverage. And so, while there may be different drivers in different countries, to me, I think the connector between all of these different contexts is really trust. And that's why we spend a lot of time trying to identify ways to build trust, whether again, that's through an interpersonal relationship, through the relationship between a healthcare system and someone that is engaging in that healthcare system, or for example, through the media and someone that might read that media.
1: Given that COVID has taken up most of our lives for the past two years, and also a lot of this conversation, what does COVID mean for the rest of your research?
2: So COVID has really been front and center simply because I work in infectious diseases and um, I work on vaccines. I think it's going to have lasting effects. And what I mean by that is that I think this erosion that we've seen in healthcare systems will continue to persist. It will now spill over to other issues, for example. We've already started to see that because of COVID, we will likely see drops in other vaccine coverage rates, i.e. like measles and rubella vaccine, for example. And so I think COVID is really shifting the way we think about not only the ways in which we can build trust, but how we can really think about how political, social, and economic forces really do impact how an individual engages with the healthcare system and what that means with regards to adherence of preventive health behaviors. And so we will continue to have to think of ways in which we can, again, meet people where they are, reduce inequity where we can. But again, all through a lens, I think of empathy and trust.
1: Before we finish up, is there anything we didn't talk about that you'd like to mention?
2: I don't think so. I mean, the key thing that I will say is that, again, the next big push is going to be how do we better engage with adolescents? And so what are the different approaches that we can use? I think the biggest challenge that we have with individuals between the ages of 12 to 18 or even 12 to 24 is that young individuals have seen that it has not, COVID has not really affected them in the same way it's affected older individuals. And so I think the key here will be what are some innovative and new ways that we can engage with this target audience?
1: Awesome, thank you so much, Rupali.
2: Yeah, you're so welcome. I hope it I hope it covered, you know, what you all were looking for.
1: Yeah, definitely. Awesome.
0: That was At Me producer Zinn Rogers speaking with Rupali LeMay, an associate scientist with the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. You've been listening to Podcast in Place from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost with additional music from Kendrick Whiteman. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org, where we have included resources for youth in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Dena'ina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including United Way of Anchorage for the Healthy Communities Funding Program. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the United Way of Anchorage or the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Tyler Felsen. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. We'll get through this together.